I didn't hear any claps. I clapped. Sorry, what I was I supposed to say? Uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> Discord just cut, cut it off. Uh, probably. <laughs> sometimes, uh, you, <laughs> sometimes you can't hear it, also because everyone yeah. does it actually perfectly. It's fun. so on sync. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Okay, great. Well, Ed, cut this out. Anyway, <laughs> hello, everybody, and welcome again to Bullet Points monthly podcast uh not a monthly podcast but a podcast for bullet points monthly and we are meeting today to uh do a sort of part two uh podcast about our month on games and climate and uh, climate change and uh this month we've basically been looking through an arc through our archives and trying to find or finding uh not too difficult not too not without too much challenge the theme of climate change and some of the pieces that have been submitted to us um, and kind of the way games comment on them and the way uh, and what can be gleaned from games that might not even necessarily be about uh, the subject. But um, for this episode, we are bringing on uh, John Bales and Autumn Wright to discuss their articles. Um, and Autumn Wright is a games critic and anime journalist and John Bales is a social theorist and freelance games critic. And uh, John wrote an article called Fighting for Lost Causes. Uh, it's about Final Fantasy VII Remake and kind of its uh, take on, you know, uh, basically corporations and climate change. And, uh, and not just that, but also the resistance to corporate-induced climate change and, and to corporate-induced societal destruction. And I guess we could we start with you, John. Um, okay. Since I'm talking, since I'm talking about it now, <laughs> um, and yeah, just I'm curious about how it's how the idea how you came up with it, this idea for Final Fantasy VII remake because I mean obviously it's like very specifically about you know the about armed resistance and and violent resistance mm -hmm. to to corporate. Um, malfeasance, but it's almost like such an obvious point that sometimes you don't necessarily like think to devote words to it. But I think you did a great job of actually making me take it more seriously than the, some of the writing mm -hmm. in the game itself does. <laughs> so I'm just kind of kind of curious about you know uh, the ideation, some of the some of the impetus there. Yeah, I mean, I guess because the you know the remake is so focused on um, you know the Midgar section of the, the original game which is really about this resistance movement you know fighting against Shinra obviously um, from that point onwards in the, in the original game it kind of you know goes to many other different places but you know because this game is focused on Midgar um, and stretches out what was probably I don't know six hours till sort of, to sort of 30 odd hours um, you get you get this much closer much more detailed look at this um, resistance movement and what they're doing um, you know against this uh, the Shinra corporation you know and it's uh, it's um, destruction of the planet so I guess you know that was kind of an obvious point to start with um, but you know and then the, one of the main things in the article is about the nostalgia aspect and the fact that this is a remake um, you know, it's it's a remake of a game that's over twenty years old. Um, 
And, you know, how has this theme therefore developed since 1997 when it first came out? Um, and how it's developed with the situation in, in reality as well, you know, the, mm. the environmental situation continuing to, to worsen and yet we seem to have largely been standing still, you know, I mean, because, you know, I can remember back in the 90s, um, there was a lot of talk about uh, the greenhouse effect, global warming, you know, whatever it was called back then. Um, it was, you know, it was always on TV, you know, as a teenager, I was very sort of clued up on it, I guess. Um, mm. And then, you know, so there's no way we could say we haven't known about it for a long time. And I don't even think it was particularly new then, you know, there was, there was a lot more, uh, you know, about it before that. So our inability to kind of, you know, to imagine a different future and make the changes that are required over such a long period of time. And then when the, the remake comes out, you know, I think it's something like 23 years later, it's still relevant in that sense that it's still, mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah, and it's, it hasn't, we haven't really moved on. We haven't really got any further and we're still sort of left hoping for solutions that, that aren't coming. Um, and yet the situation is now much more urgent, um, you know, and, and, and needs dealing with much more urgently and needs much more radical uh, responses to it. Um, and so this idea of this, you know, this kind of terrorist response, this kind of violent resistance, in a way is more relevant than it even was in the first place. You know, I, I kind of talked about how it was um, nostalgic back in 1997. The idea of armed resistance had become quite nostalgic by then, by the 90s. You know, it was more of a 70s thing. It was more of a 60s thing. Um, whereas now the kind of the urgency we have makes it seem more relevant again in a sense not mm -hmm. armed resistance and terrorism necessarily but some kind of urgent action so i guess that was the the kind of starting point for it it's um, yeah definitely go ahead i was just gonna say it, it is i mean i think you you grapple with that very well about the kind of comfort of playing this game and i mean we'll get into this too but you know the remakes big sort of swerve is sort of upending that nostalgia, um, mm -hmm. and, and sort of showing that. Uh, I forget who you're citing. I think you're citing someone through Zizek, right? With the the uh, act, right? The mm -hmm. if if the choices seem to be A or B, uh, a revolutionary choice might be, or the the act might be picking C. You know, the the one that just doesn't occur. That that is yeah. so unknown. That but the the stakes are so high that the sense of risk is important. And the way that kind of dovetails with the idea of just sort of taking something that a story that we know, and especially a game like you know Final Fantasy VII, which has this stature and, and legacy, and you know I think it's uh, especially when I was growing up, it was one of those ones that was like you know on the top ten games you have to play list, mm -hmm. um, and and just seeing that kind of. Uh, twisted around a little bit at the end does have that kind of jarring effect and I think you're right you do in the piece kind of I think hedge a little bit of, of saying that you know this maybe it's a, also a good way to extend a game into three parts and kind of uh, do a little of that but I, I do think that that idea is something you don't see so much of um, mm -hmm. 
and and it's depressing the idea that maybe you can play this game and and I think when I was playing it, you know, the first however long, there is that sense of just oh, this is comfortable, and it's you know, it's novel in the sense of it, it looks and feels quite different, um, but you know, the music is the same and these characters and blah blah blah, but there should be something I think a little bit disconcerting about the fact that the messages in this game that uh, you know were important uh, in in the late 90s and now you know well now is 25 years later we it's still the same thing and it's just becoming increasing you know the the, the water is just getting closer and closer to full boil and and uh, just how do you kind of shock the system enough for like what does it take I think is preoccupation in that piece and yeah anyway it's kind of interesting to me um just think because i feel like there's so much of the remake in the news right now like at least the game news in terms of like all the Mm -hmm. dlc and uh, chapters which i find profoundly confusing (laughs) because i'm just like (laughs) i thought you were going to make three things and then that was going to be the product but now it just seems like this like you like you mentioned like it's there's there's a level of money extraction that is Mm -hmm. oh like being like more and more force to the forefront and i wonder if it takes away too from the message that you are you're gleaning in this piece where it like you know because you're spending more time in the slums in like the undercity um they're actually it becomes there there is like it's not just a remake it's also a retelling and a recentering um in at least the first game because like re- remembering back on it when i was like played it as a teenager or younger maybe um you know my memories of the game are more after you leave like the the mm. town and like all the fan more fan- fantastical elements of it and the fantasy elements of it um and i yeah obviously like you never forget the first you know the the preamble chapter but um in the in the recentering of it i feel like uh, in this in this remake i feel like you're able this allows this the essay that you wrote to be written and i wonder if we're moving away from that message and i hope not um but there is like the sense of like Square just kind of squandering some of some of that storytelling mm-hmm. opportunity. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know if, you, if you feel the same is, way. Yeah, well, this is Square Enix. They're not exactly got the best um, <laughs> track record these days. Karl Marx is Square Enix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of their their games are not um, are, are cash grabs. You know, let's let's be honest. You know, I mean, if you look at the Avengers and. A lot of the um, other remasters of Final Fantasy games and so on, you know, it's only kind of Final Fantasy fourteen that's sort of holding their reputation up these days, I think. Um, and mm. to a certain extent, this, you know, the first uh, remake episode. Um, so I don't really have necessarily a great deal of faith in it going forward. Um, and I don't necessarily think the actual uh, narrative mechanisms they used to take this turn away from the original story are particularly... Um, compelling or you know it was all a bit overblown and and you could kind of see you know spoiler alert i guess but um they're trying to shoehorn the main villain sephiroth into this first episode um when in the original game he didn't really make an appearance until later you know there's a flashback sequence not long after they leave uh, the main city where cloud tells his story about um, his, his adventures with, with Sephiroth, you know, and that's when you first find out about him. So they've kind of, you know, they've, they've 
manufactured a way to put him into the, the first game and have a boss fight against Sephiroth, you know. I think, mm-hmm. you know, you can kind of see that that's part of what they did. Um, but, you know, symbolically or allegorically or whatever, it's, it, it, yeah, it, it stops the, the sheer kind of nostalgia thing, um, which, you know, and for me it's interesting. I don't generally kind of buy into a lot of nostalgia, you know, in games, um, but I think Final Fantasy VII is possibly the one most of all that I do because it's just it's a game that just you know I played it probably when I was about twenty or something to start with, um, and just you know I just I loved it and the characters and the locations and, and the, the systems and everything and it's it's probably the one kind of uh, you know game and, and world that I I'm just have this particular kind of strong nostalgia for so for me playing this uh, the first episode of the remake or the remake as it's now called the rest of it isn't called a remake um, it was a lot of it was about just oh look there's that character and, and how they mm-hmm. fleshed them out and and as that scene that I recognize and it was just it was a kind of for me it was that a thrill on that level you know so I could have just enjoyed it on that very basic level of nostalgia um, but I'm I'm glad that they didn't just stick to that. I'm glad that they did make that change because of the. It seems more faithful to the themes of the game. This this revolutionary theme. You know, you shouldn't leave the city at the end of Midgar knowing what's coming. Um, because it's you know if you really are on a kind of revolutionary road. You know, revolution is not something you can. You can know about. You know, you you embark on revolutionary action not knowing the outcome you have to you know it, it's something it's fighting for lost causes you know the title of the of the the essay you know it's all about taking a step into the unknown choosing you know rather than choosing between a and b choosing c you don't know what that is you don't know where it'll take you so in that sense i think thematically this ending you know this changed ending in the remake is important but you know what they do with it after that i have no idea but i just think at this stage it's yeah it it really helps with uh, to kind of um you know recast the theme of of revolution that they they developed in the first one rather mm-hmm. than simply following it which would have been just uh, an, you know a nostalgia trip without anything without anything much to it so i think it's important in that sense yes yeah thinking about it in terms of like what it in terms of what it can or uh, explicitly does or in the text versus like yeah what it accomplishes um there is like a. I, I think I, I, I'm thinking about like how you're writing about Barrett and um, and mm-hmm. like you know I, my my own piece of Final Fantasy VII I had a lot of problems with how they um, you know how they basically uh, um, gave him more resolution from going from like the 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 but the the arrangement of five polygons. <laughs> To like a you know voiced act, a character, uh, mm. in the sense that like you know other characters like they become more human. Like I feel like Cloud like there's a lot of nuance added mm-hmm. to the way he's characterized. So Barrett becomes a lot more caricaturish, just because like that also is how he was written in the in the original. But like they go they can they, mm. they kind of continue down that path. But I think reading your essay also like uh, added some more insight for me about um, about the character because yeah there's. There's a level of there's always going to be a level of caricature to him, but it's also um, a lot. There is more there 
in terms of like his, specifically his political ambitions um, that I think like are not are not to be discounted. Like I, I like I kind of like that you shown some light on on how Barrett kind of was was I guess improved so to speak, or at least like kind of how he becomes almost a centerpiece of of this chapter. Yeah, I think yeah his um, his ambition. His political ambition to, you know, to lead this uh, kind of revolution against the Shinra Corporation. I mean, I, th I think it does kind of take a, take the lead in a sense. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, I kind of wrote. I think the other characters, you know, the other two characters, um, Cloud and Tifa. You know, Cloud is just this kind of cynic. You know, he's just like, yeah, whatever. Well, I'll just do whatever. He's not. Um, he's not invested in anything. He's not kind of ideological. In that sense, you know, Tifa is, I suppose, a kind of liberal dissenting voice against <laughs> um, resistance in a way. She keeps questioning the violent methods and so on. Um, but I think, yeah, Barrett tends to get the final word in these situations. You know, he's and he's got this quite clear idea. And, you know, and he makes his own sacrifices as well, like, his, you know, being estranged from his daughter, about having to abandon his daughter. Um, that this is just something that needs to be done. And I don't think he necessarily feels like he will succeed. It almost just seems like it's a necessity. You know, it has to be done. You have to fight this. And that's, yeah, I think that's quite inspiring as well. I totally get the, the criticisms about him as a character. He's, you know, he is sort of one-dimensional and um, stereotypical in many ways as well. Um, and his his dialogue is often just... You know the most ridiculous and so on, um, but yeah, I, th I think he does have this kind of leading political voice in the in the game, and th and they kind of let him have that. They they question it, but they let him kind of have the last word in the end, which I think is interesting. You know, when we consider um, how you know what's happened in terms of um, the kind of discourse on on terrorism since the first game was since the first game was released, you know, post 9-11 mm -hmm. and so on. You know, you had these characters that were, you know, terrorists, they're eco-terrorists. I mean, I think mm -hmm. under any definition they would be. Um, and, you know, 1997, perhaps it was easier to kind of just say that nobody took it very seriously. You know, post 9-11 and everything that's gone since, I think it is quite a, a stance in a way to just, you know, have these terrorists and, and allow the lead terrorist in a way to have the final word and allow his political idea to be a serious one um mm -hmm. you know yeah i mean uh, you know but i've always said all the way through it that even in 1997 the these ideas about resistance armed resistance and terrorism seemed dated then they seemed nostalgic then in 1997 they seemed like they were about the 60s and the 70s um, and they're doomed to fail. So it's it's not a kind of glorification of terrorist methods, but it's a, a kind of respect for the need to take this level of action, to be this radical, to say this has to be done. You know, um, we can't do half measures. And I think that's um, that goes again with a lot of uh, some of what Zizek has said about uh, you know the environmental situation. Um, you know, looking at the present looking back at the present as if from the future, like seeing the present as history. And, you know, if we're in the future, you know, what will have happened by then? If the disaster has happened, it's because we either didn't do anything to stop it or we did sort of piecemeal 
um, you know, policies and so on that weren't enough. You know, so the only the only action to take is really option C again. It's, it's the radical measures. It's to it's to take drastic measures. And even if it turns out the uh, the disaster was never going to be that strong, well, you know, if the world wasn't going to be destroyed, well, you haven't lost anything by doing that. You know, it's a gamble mm. worth taking. You know, it's um, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You end up with a greener economy anyway even if the world wasn't under threat, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a kind of a win-win. So why not go for the radical option? You kind of, you have to in a way, um, because the, the moderate option isn't going to be enough if the disaster does turn out to be real. It's, you might as well do nothing as do the moderate option, you know, so. It, yeah, they're not you know, gonna make so a video game get... about coal credits. <laughs> hmm? Or they're not going to make a game about like coal credits or buying or like a, the clean energy uh, credits that Obama did, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is the only thing that right. we, yes. only <laughs> direction that we've done in the last thirty years. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I was I mean, uh, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say something. I was just going to say the <laughs> assholey thing of I was pretty inspired seeing that clip of Kamala Harris uh, talking uh, about how she's going to address in America the. Uh, that Supreme Court decision on the EPA, where she's saying we're going to uh, work together to find uh, a together. Uh, and I was like, well, everything's in good hands in the states. At least, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, don't you worry about it. Together about five times in thirty seconds. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't know what they're going to do, but they're definitely working together. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, yeah. But I, was, I think you definitely raise a good point where it's like. Uh, it's very reflective of like how our culture has shifted post 9-11 like into being becoming far more policed actually and far more um living you know kind of secure in a security state where like you know people are tweeting about getting like threats from the homeland from homeland security for like uh yelling about abortion like in a perfectly perfectly understandable way on online mm -hmm. i mean we are absolutely surveilled in a way that we were not at all in the 90s um we were, it was just the very mm -hmm. beginning of that kind of past like you know uh subtle pacification of of the population um and we're, we're at the stage now yeah where it becomes almost like uh, i remember you know like the, the last few years i've seen a lot of um of that tension come to the surface uh with like polite and liberal society uh aghast at the methods of punching nazis or uh yelling a speaker outside you know off of his podium or, or protesting in a, in a restaurant <laughs> god forbid mm -hmm. uh these yeah the, the kind of uh the way like liberal cultural like kind of especially neoliberalism views uh making change as like uh uh creating like uh piecemeal government programs that will be able to affect like less than a percent of the population like the stuff like that's like uh, as as un uh dramatic and as uh, and it doesn't like ruffle it ruffles as few feathers as possible and it's become like a such a uh inertial uh stance for like in america for the opposition party um or for the left the left wing of government um in giant quotation marks um but like yeah that and then the game dropping in that um circumstance is different i mean it's different in the sense that like when it dropped in the 90s we were already kind of on the beginning of that road um and then now seeing it kind of revisiting it it's like we're we are 
we're both at the at further down the road, but we're also seeing a lot of a lot more like kind of I think I would say resistance to that that mode of thought, especially in people who are younger and in and, and more marginal positions, like being given the ability to actually voice um, uh, some of like uh, just like the bullshit of that like uh, that rhetoric of like civil discourse and both sides and reaching across the aisle and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, speaking of, I was just thinking actually this might be a good bridge. I feel bad Autumn has been sitting quietly. Oh no, this is a very <laughs> enjoyable to listen to. <laughs> but uh, enough about Final Fantasy VII, that game no one cares about. I want to talk about Biomutant. <laughs> I have not thought about Biomutant <laughs> since I wrote this essay. I have only thought about Biomutant uh, since <laughs> writing that stuff and editing that stuff when uh, Yusuf has brought up Biomutant <laughs> as an example, as a cautionary tale. <laughs> and to reread your essay for this like, are, as well. Really, like, Reed, are you sure you want to cover that interesting looking game that no one is talking about? <laughs> Biomutant. Biomutant's gonna change everything. Um, to be fair, I will say Biomutant produced, I think, some good articles. Still, Autumn's piece. Yes. Mm -hmm. If you look at the quality of Biomutant and you look at the quality of Autumn's <laughs> article, I think it's uh, it's really you know rich blood from a little pebble, a little chipped pebble. Um, you can say that for it that it generates criticism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sight of meaning making. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was going to yeah ask kind of the same question that uh, Yusuf posed to John at the beginning too of, which I think is at least with Final Fantasy VII. I think you get a little bit more of the, you know, the the text is a little bit more explicit about what's going for, whereas Biomutant I think was a real Rorschach test of. Uh, <laughs> what's going to stick out from this thing to the people writing about it so I was kind of wondering how you ended up with uh, going in the direction you did uh, and talking about sort of post-apocalyptic fiction and uh, genre and subgenre, especially in Japanese media yeah sort of how yeah how that came to be in, in your head for it yeah so I wrote this uh, last summer now and um, I guess it was like I started writing a column at the Wonderful Monthly, uh, shout outs, uh, in like 2020, uh, that fall, um, and that ended up becoming this like discursive exploration of apocalypse fiction and finding meaning in that, um, and it was, you know, tied to very personal uh, explorations of like myself and the environment around me. Um, and so at the time that I had been uh, that I was like starting to write this essay. Um, I had been doing a lot of hiking kind of all around Florida during the pandemic. Um, and at that time I was living in South Florida, so I was uh, very close to the Everglades. Mm -hmm. um, and so these things all kind of just came together in a way. Um, uh, it was this combination of, you know, like uh, looking at post-apocalyptic fiction um, and this like uh, kind of like trail of uh, theory that I was going down about particularly like why Japanese apocalypse fiction looks the way it does 
um, getting into subgenres of that. Um, and then, like, kind of just, like, I, I guess, like, I, I write about having, like, a particular, like, moment out in the Everglades, um, a particular sunset that was very moving, um, and I just, like, was starting to make these relations of it's, like, the the feeling I have here is a feeling that I see is represented in some particular apocalypse fiction uh, in anime and manga. Um, so I've been kind of wanting to explore that. Um, then Biomutant happens, and... Um, I think we probably all uh, started a game that uh, we have to play some amount of uh, and very quickly bounced off of it. Uh, there's definitely the sinking feeling I have uh, when I'm like, oh my god, I do not want to spend more than 10 more hours with this, um, but I probably have to. Um, so yeah, I mean, like when I've described this essay, I've said it's ostensibly about Biomutant. Um, because it's mostly about other stuff, um, and Biomutant is just, like, one of the touchstones in there. Um, thanks for letting me get away with that. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was like everything just kind of came together, these things I was researching, these things I was learning. Um, and I think, like, something that I did hear that I, I guess I'm still really proud of is, like, I've always kind of wanted to write history in a way, um, and I spent a lot of time writing this like the the stuff that I wanted to learn uh, for this essay specifically was more uh, indigenous history around the Everglades um, and I kind of wanted to put that out there and find these connections of like uh, harm in the past to current and future harms uh, and yeah I think it, I think I did that yeah, I think, well, it's one of the things that's, to me, is striking in, I think when you're talking about, um, and unfortunately I can't remember the exact genre names for sort of the, like, kind of the idyllic sort of post-post-apocalypse. Yeah, it's uh, Iyashke. Yeah, versus the, it's, there are two you're kind of talking about. One is sort of the Animal Crossing kind of, like, harmonious relationship, right? And one is... Best way to describe this. Uh, yeah, how would I quickly describe Sekake? <laughs> well, um, you, did you use the example of like Evangelion with that too, and sort of being like the intimate relationships of people with like in disaster or post disaster kind yeah, of? Yeah, yeah. So the the two kind of subgenres that emerge out of Japan in the 90s uh, relating to apocalypse fiction are Sekake and Diyashike. Uh, Evangelion is kind of considered the grandfather of Sakaike. Um, I did actually write about more about Sakaike specifically in a column at Unwinnable, if you want to go check that out. It's about weathering with you. Um, but Yashke emerges as this like specific relationship to nature. Uh, the like literal translation of Yashke is healing type. Um, and so yeah, like there's this emphasis on this harmonious relationship to the environment. Um, whereas Sakaike, um, if you think about Narutamda, Evangelion, anything Makoto Shinkai has ever made, like, there's usually a protagonist and a love interest, and there's, you know, like, I think, I think Evangelion's a good example, because there's these giant mechs in the background, and there's world governments and apocalypse, and that doesn't matter, it's really what's going on inside Shinji's head and, like, his relationships to the people around him. Um, it's mm -hmm. this very, like, interpersonal thing. 
whereas Yashke is more about this like it's this romantic experience of a moving environment and the the world around characters is more of the character than the individuals themselves um and so um i kind of look at like one of the very first works to kind of come out of this time uh the manga and anime yokohama kadashikiko um just known by many other unofficial translations uh like kite country cafe um it was never actually translated uh, into English, um, and there's an OVA adaptation of a couple of the volumes that uh, got subtitled and released on like VHS in the uh, like early 2000s, uh, and those are like just on YouTube. Um, so that that kind of made that series very popular here, and I don't think people have been very good at articulating why that is so affecting to uh, you know like people my age, people born after. Uh, this was even made um, in on the other side of the world in a very different place. Um, so I kind of wanted to figure out why is this so moving? Why is this so affecting? Yeah, and I, I think what I was thinking about this, and specifically, like, I love the way the piece sort of takes the long view, both in terms of when you're discussing, you know, post post apocalyptic fiction, right, where you have some of the stuff which in some cases is imagining the end of you know the Anthropocene I don't know the, if that's the best way to pronounce that I never feel comfortable saying it but the the end of the human era right the the mm-hmm. earth beyond us um, but then if you're also looking back at you know when you're looking at uh, South Florida and you're kind of looking at the history of um, when, when you're going back centuries and millennia and kind of looking at like what this area is and it does give you that view of you know the things that are happening right now are kind of you know we're, we're at this very specific moment where so much has happened before and so much will happen going forward and maybe we won't be a part of it which to me it's it's interesting contrasting that too with what John is writing about this sort of like um, kind of like moment of action or, or something that kind of says like we're kind of drift if we're sort of drifting towards disaster you know I wonder about these genres of like post post apocalypse and you point out the is it the 311 mm-hmm. disasters in Japan when it was the uh, the Fukushima reactor and the earthquake and the tsunami right the yeah. three disasters and I think, you know, I think I can only imagine living in Japan the psychic effects of, well, there it is, right? There's, there is a natural disaster of such incredible scale. You know, you still hear stories about the different ways that, you know, the irradiated zones in Fukushima are, are being dealt with. And, you know, you can also look at the government response um, to, to how they kind of tried to have people just go back and kind of pretend things weren't as bad as they are Mm -hmm. and I wonder if a lot of these things if kind of if we're of a mind to say you know if if we have these genre imaginings of the time after the the end if it's sort of a sense of resignation in you know and I I know some of the examples you're pulling from as well are, are 
you know, from the late 90s and early 2000s and, and so forth. But it's kind of interesting to contrast two, two sort of examples of, of work that's like dealing in some way with like living through, you know, the, the before times of, of disaster and saying, well, we got to kind of do something now or also the idea of, well, we're kind of fucked. Like, just kind of like, it seems like a very kind of pessimistic versus like, you know, optimistic view of, of what we can do and how we should sort of imagine or how, how our art is coming out through those, those kind of cultural imaginings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think like with uh, most post-post-apocalyptic fiction, I see there is almost a like... Uh, acceptance in those kinds of works like Breath of the Wild is like a probably the most known example you could use um like the the land like returns to normal you know or to a, a new normal like I think like there's a there's a strain of thought throughout all this that like uh what I wrote that's like you know humans are the cause of this particular humans are the cause of these things um and based off like all historical examples like the earth can survive without us um and i think like you know we are destroying our own habitat but i think there's this um sense of a peaceful acceptance in like things like life will still go on just not human life necessarily um and i think like you know, part of the important setup of this understanding is also going back to, like, um, indigeneity and indigenous perspectives on uh, apocalypse because, um, like, uh, this an apocalypse and the timing of post-apocalypse is really relative, like, uh, to many people that lived in America before colonization. The land that we are in now looks like a post-apocalypse. Um, and that's something I really wanted to hammer in, like, the Everglades, especially. Like, they are ruins of what they were before. Um, and there were people that lived there before. Um, and what we have done to that is destroy the environment. Um, so in that sense, like, we are already living in a post-apocalypse. And I think I wanted to say that. Um, I think that's, you know, drawing on Fisher. Um, like, I wanted to say, like, we are already here. What is next? Um, what does a post-post-apocalypse look like? Like, that is almost a return to a calmer, uh, more peaceful status quo. Yeah, it kind of, it reminds me, I think it's really apropos, like, the the way, like, um, Final Fantasy VII, like, has that, um, the earth is dying cloud, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that moment, or that, that it's really, like, I, I'm thinking of it in terms of, like, existential, dread versus like it's like it's like apocalypse it's existential versus like post-existential like or like this kind of or it's more like i don't want like i'm worried about the end you know about like there's a the fear of like of life ending and then there's also like an understanding that like yes life will end for some not for everyone um and what does it, what, yeah, just what does it mean? Like, how do you, like, what happens when you get to the other side of that, um, that, like, almost, that, that, that fear that's, like, that's enough to, you know, drive these political movements, like, avalanche, avalanche that are 
positioning it as like life or death have to act now um have to like uh you know uh like fight against the dying of the light that kind of situation um and then the like the yeah the post folks apocalypse feels like not necessarily like a an improvement on that as much as like a different perspective like that is like yeah a kind of a like it becomes less about the polemic and about like the about the struggle as much as it is about like this almost detached view that's like that's yeah that is like looking at the uh, wait like it is like looking at the present from the future in that in some ways or like in the the sense of like you know remember when we could have stopped climate change Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and now yeah now we're living or like remember we remember when we thought we could have stopped it i mean there's something like really and it's like I'm, i'm trying to like skirt to skirt away or like kind of avoid like like kind of this like this this sensation of like of um acquiescence because that's not really what i'm trying to drive at like it's more um yeah the understanding of history like what you're saying where it's like yeah like we we're living in we're, we're for many people that we are in the the apocalypse came and went um and yeah. like there is like uh certainly like a like a very much like a, a eurocentric like western centric like perspective of climate change that ignores all that and then kind of like and then basically posits it as like it's bad now because it's bad for us because it's bad like in our in the environments that we are living in like but for other places like you know like that's the disaster is already here and that's like kind of where you're where i think where you're getting at with your piece yeah, I mean, I think there's a sense of, like, apocalypse uh, related to the end of history um, and, like, climate grief and this, like, just ex- acquiescence to the, the things will be, like, you know, oh, we're doomed is, like, yeah, we can't change anything. You know, history is over. There is no th- other option. Uh, there's no alternative. There's no uh, C, uh, uh, like, Lacanian act that we can make to get out of this. Um, and like, you know, the post-apocalypse in a lot of Western fiction, like say The Last of Us is like a period on that. Mm. Like, look, humans return to the same systems, the same logics, the same modes of being that brought them to this. You know, we reinvent colonialism and all these boring American and Eurocentric post-apocalypse fictions. Um, mm. Whereas like post-post-apocalypse, like that doesn't, I don't really think, uh, I don't know many examples of that that are like, uh, produced by uh, settler societies, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and I think that that can be seen as this like restart of history. Almost uh, history can start up again after it stops. That sense of that, um, and I think like um, you know, coming out of this, I'm remembering also that like part of why I wanted to talk about Japanese. Uh, apocalypse narratives is also because like Biomedia does kind of pull on that, evoke certain imagery um, there is Buddhist ideas of like a cyclical apocalypse um, and obviously like it, it's it's like Breath of the Wild, we just have to say that um, <laughs> but it's like it doesn't understand the things that 
make those what they are, that have the effect on us, that tell the story that they're doing. Um, I, I describe it in this essay as like, uh, it is people taking the, the pure surface level stuff on there um, and fitting it into action and fighting and just like a very normative script. Um, and part of that comes from like the, the limit of like, you know, you can fight for one side or you can fight for the other. At the very beginning of the game, there's this choice, and it was like at that point where I was like, "Yeah, this just doesn't <laughs> do it." Like, um, and the, the choice comes down to like, you can like prolong the cycle, or you can start it, but you can't break out of it. We're just gonna keep going the cycle of uh, some form yeah. of society being reborn and then collapsing in on itself. Yeah, yes, it's deeply cynical. And you mentioned near Automata in your article as well. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about that and then thinking about Biomutant and thinking of these post-apocalypses and imaginings of sort of existence and maybe even sort of humanity's influence on on the world after we're gone and so forth and so on. And near Automata is it's like actually engages with that stuff and I think it a relatively meaningful way I don't I don't think it's mind-blowing necessarily but when you talk about those kind of far-flung future and and the idea of well what what does this what does this look like and, and what does the the end of humanity's time on earth sort of how, how can we conceive of, of these things and also you know I think Automata takes a very Buddhist view of, of these cycles of rebirth and, uh, you know, and actually does so in a way that's, like, affecting. Um, mm -hmm. Biomutant, <laughs> I mean, that was one of the things that did seem initially, like, maybe there was going to be something. And, like, what you're talking about when you get that kind of binary choice, it's like, fuck, this isn't going to happen. This, this is not going to work. But the idea of these, like, oh, well, here's these creatures who are are making their new society and maybe there's a kind of exploration here of, of what their societies are going to look like and anyway but uh, it doesn't do any of that and the best thing you can say about it is that the creatures are kind of fun to look at <laughs> That's what uh, I say, yeah. the textures of their fur is still unsettling to me <laughs> they do have sort of like yeah, so, like the fur kind of looks like a, millions of, of tiny little thin needles in a way that I don't think was super intended. <laughs> like, I don't think it was <laughs> like exactly hedgehog or like hedgehoggy. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah, like uh, like that. Um, well, I'm kind of I mean, curious. Could I could I just um, come in? Please, please, on, yeah. On yeah, of course. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, I suppose I saw it. You know, in, in relation to Final Fantasy VII, you know, this kind of, I suppose, a post-apocalyptic or post-post-apocalyptic fantasy, um, because it's it constantly goes, drones on and on about how your freedom, your freedom to choose and, and your freedom to shape the world according to your values. Um, so I think, and I think there is this kind of brand of, of post-apocalyptic fiction now, which is, it turns it into a fantasy. It's, you know, it's, it's almost a utopian um, you know, end of civilization. Um, mm. 
and, and yeah, and this is what it's doing here. It's all about now you're free. Now you're finally free from, <laughs> from civilization. Now you're free to, to shape the world very libertarian. Um, as you see fit. <laughs> yeah, but of, of course, you know, the, the choices you actually get in the game are, are absolutely ridiculous. You know, um, I remember one where there's a guy in a cage, you know, and with his captors nearby, and you can kill his captors and open the cage. And then you're given the choice whether to let him run free or just to punch him in the face for no reason. Um, <laughs> and this is like, this is one of the choices in the game, you know, and you can choose, okay, I'll punch him and you do. And, the, the, you know, and it's, in the end, it has, it does, it comes back to the, the civilization or the, you know, the capitalism that it's supposed to be, you know, fantasizing an escape from. I think these ridiculous choices, these kind of consumerist style choices um, these meaningless choices that aren't really going anywhere. So I, I think that's what it is. Um, but, you know, I think it's really interesting what Autumn was saying in, in the essay about these other um, post-post-apocalyptic um, scenarios, which are, yeah, they're alternatives to the Western view, and I think that is, that is really interesting when you apply it to, you know, my, the reading of, of Final Fantasy VII and its kind of urgency to, you know, this is humanity on the line, and this is everything on the line. This is it's saving the planet. It's always on about saving the planet. Final Fantasy VII. We're actually mm -hmm. not. We're actually not saving the planet. What we're talking about with this environmental stuff is saving ourselves, isn't it? Really, mm -hmm. uh, and a, a particular kind of civilization. So it's yeah, it's a very interesting contrast, I think. Um, well, and just yeah, just sorry, very quickly on Biomutant oh, no. again. Um, I mean, because one of the the ties I've noticed was. I actually mentioned that the uh, very cliched Frederick Jameson quote that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, in things like Biomutant, these post-apocalyptic fantasies, they're kind of they're still lacking the imagination, but they're imagining, rather than imagining the end of capitalism in a, in a way that we can create a world, they're just imagining that capitalism destroys the world and takes everything with it with the hope that we can then you know something then gets a chance to thrive after capitalism so yeah it's, it's still not the same as having the imagination to to think of how capitalism might end or it might be ended by us in a positive way it's just okay well now we wait um, until capitalism destroys everything because it's inevitable and then hope for something else afterwards so it's a form of Kind of resignation, I think, ideologically. I would say. Yeah. yeah, and you also get that kind of. Uh, I think like Biomutant, and I think in in some uh, games, kind of in this mold is is you get the end of the world, and like Autumn was saying, you get that libertarian viewpoint of well, let's strip things back to basics, and then you get an, a nice, uncomplicated, pure sort of early capitalism, where you're exchanging. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> sort of like the goods you are directly acquiring to a local shop that is buying and selling goods you know you get this like well you know if it's just if it's on this scale it's pretty sweet it's uh <laughs> you know we could we could keep doing it this way and I, and I think it's great um but there was a, the one thing that was interesting about what you were saying too john is that it's i think you do get a focus in i guess it's just remake and we'll see what happens with these next two ones but in the original Final Fantasy 7 they do sort of you know draw the scope out um, from 
the kind of survival of humanity and human like no I guess humanity and then you you do get this thing that no the planet itself is going to be destroyed <laughs> you know some of the, the essential essence like the life stream or whatever is going to be sucked out and it kind of like notably ends with this post credit thing of where they have managed to kind of save a bit fuzzy on it's been a long time but they they do manage to kind of save the essence of the earth but then you're shown you know millennia later and it's uh whatever you know the red, dog red 13 is it red yeah 13? it's like yeah, yeah. him and his cubs or i it's implied to be him and his cubs but maybe it's a mm -hmm. different uh but you sort of see them and then they're looking out over the ruins of midgard right it's mm -hmm. it's this idea that the the fight was maybe just to you know it's it's like essentially saying like well you know humanity's doomed but let's let's figure out these nuclear plants before we go um mm -hmm. so that other life can survive more easily and, and take over which is you know so it does kind of i think have both uh both viewings of it and sort of ultimately maybe a pretty pessimistic view of in the original at least of you know midgard should be consigned to ruins it's it's a bad system it's the the human city that we kind of see and it's you know ends yeah. up having this literally stratified society where it's just horrible injustice and it's like well maybe maybe we're kind of going to get what's coming to us eventually and hopefully the animals uh don't have to go extinct mm -hmm. you know the non-human animals yeah. will will not will make it out too yeah, I mean, you kind of wonder about the rest of the world because I, I guess um, Midgar is like the representation of modern capitalism in a way, isn't it? And um, you know, nuclear or fossil fuel extraction. I mean, that is, stands in for that. And then, I mean, there are a few other locations that are connected to Shinra, like Gold Saucer, which is kind of the uh, the entertainment center, you know, which stands in for, for consumerism, I guess. Um, and the kind of slums beneath that, where the, just the rubbish of consumerism kind of filters down. Oh yeah. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the world um, is more rural, I guess, and um, you know, so it's kind of yeah. Like the end is certainly the end of this technological capitalism, but I don't know if it's the end of humanity. I mean, it, it never, of course, um, shows you explicitly, does it? Um, but yeah. I don't know, it's an interesting one in that sense, you know, whether it's humanity or this representation of capitalism that it's kind of has to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. I wonder yeah. if it's so it's almost both. <laughs> it's like mm. or they, they like kind of it has to be like it's not necessarily like the end of humanity, but it's the end of the kind of humanity that would build these cities. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's like like in that in that way that is where post post apocalypse is like kind of radical, right? Where it's like it's not saying like yeah, let's resign ourselves to what the corporations will do to us. It's more saying like, let's reimagine what like humanity can be and like how we can mm -hmm. coexist with nature, and not even like reimagine it in a <laughs> radical new way. Really, just remember, remember how we may have done things before the industrial revolution, or um, or at least until like kind of capitalism like kind of became like the mode of 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 relating to everything else. Yeah, I mean, I think like a failure of a lot of. Uh, imagination uh, related to like figures figuring out how to live uh, alongside our climate right now is this like failure to want to walk back 
any of the developments that have only happened at the behest of uh, capitalism and colonialism. Um, a city like Midgar is, you know, the way it's portrayed, it's like that doesn't exist without the extractive industries that are destroying the planet. So if you want the planet to be here in a thousand years, like the city can't. Um, and it's like we have to make these certain sacrifices. Um, and, you know, you could relate that to so many parts of like modern uh, environmental movements, conversations related to like eating meat or driving the use of certain energies and materials. It reminds me of a conversation I had last night about like recycling. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like tongue in cheek about like why you know like, how it's just come up, come across, or it, it was sold as like you know the the panacea, and it was like actually no, it was the plastic company selling it to us so that <laughs> they could continue making plastic. <laughs> like that was like that is what recycling like that is like the marketing message behind it. Like it's still like you know the and it, and it captures on people's like desire for things to be better. But it's mm-hmm. like the way, it's like kind of capitalism consuming it into like something that is that maintains the status quo while pretending that we're actually fixing things. Yeah, it's, you know, you get like BP oil doing, you know, their environmental campaigns. It's like you can't really mm-hmm. square that. Yep. Circle, right? <laughs> and bio. Oh, sorry. I was gonna say biomutant has this like crafting system that's called upcycling, and it thinks it's very cute. Yeah. And it, it just like pissed me off when it did that. <laughs> well that was a lot of what our, our generation was sold you, you think about that you know in the original final fantasy 7 and the the mid to late 90s there there was so much in school growing up where it was you know the importance of recycling and here's we had here in canada we had i think it was like ranger rick or something it was like a bear he told you about recycling <laughs> and how important it was and it was gonna like save our forests and stuff and then we would go and pick up uh trash on paved streets and that was <laughs> our environmental duty you know mm-hmm. um and in, in hindsight it's well what the fuck were we doing like it, it's just such a you know you have a, a gaping infected flesh wound on your abdomen and you're <laughs> like well if you put a band-aid on the end of it <laughs> it'll all be fine um yeah i I was gonna ask autumn really quickly um what kind of narrative or like overarching plot is in um god the the one that you mentioned the country cafe yeah i mean like it resists look like with with the storytelling yeah i mean it kind of resists plot that's like part of the whole thing uh, but the, the premise is, like, uh, the main character of sorts is this android named Alpha. Uh, after the apocalypse has happened and everything has settled down, uh, these androids are made that basically help the few humans left around kind of the world, although this is set in a region of Japan. Um, it's just, like, they're, they're there to help humans. Um, so there is this small, like... Uh, uh, so basically, like, Alpha uh, ha- has an owner uh, that she was made to assist, um, and that person uh, just decides to leave one day and leave Alpha there. Uh, he's going to go explore, and she's going to just run the cafe that he owns. Uh, so she spends her days in these, like, uh, kind of, like, you know, these days that are very still, there's no seasons, like, everything just 
is like settled and every day is the same. Um, like she, she just does that every day. Um, the OVA is really interesting. I think like one of the things that uh, just like makes me excited uh, in this is like the very beginning of the OVA, you see like Alpha wakes up in this old wooden house, uh, goes downstairs, she's brewing coffee, and an, an anime like this is like going to lovingly animate what making coffee in the morning looks like. Um, <laughs> and she sits down and enjoys it, and she sets her pistol on the table because she just has one of those. Um, and it's it's like this weird like what is it's this unsettling moment where it's like okay the world is not what it seems and then like you know it very slowly unfolds what's what happened it doesn't want to talk about the apocalypse like there's like i think a prologue and epilogue where it just kind of says this happened through narration um and so like yeah and there's like people that live near the cafe that occasionally come in uh there's an older man there's a younger boy they kind of help each other out uh, like there's a hurricane one time uh, and they hunker down together and then they have to help each other rebuild. Um, it's about these things. And then eventually uh, Alpha gets a note from her owner who's like, you should go explore. Um, and she does and like just sees the world uh, that uh, like, like we are seeing the world that this uh, anime and manga imagine. She is seeing it for the first time with a sense of wonder. Um, and I think... Yashke really does, can capture the sense of wonder, uh, making us like see things new for the first time. Um, that is represented in the show uh, in like the beginning of the manga as well by Alpha getting a camera, uh, and the person who comes to deliver the camera is another android. All the androids seem to be girls, um, and the androids exchange information information by kissing. Um, which is just the first part in like uh, this really sapphic undertone through the whole thing <laughs> that I kind of briefly touch on. Because um, like, yeah, another part of the appeal of this whole thing is like, there's just all these quiet moments of Alpha that come across as like, they have an appeal that is very sapphic in nature. And I really love that. Yeah, that's interesting. I was just thinking of like, yeah. I, I guess I wondered then if you, I mean, you can tell stories about anything just, yeah when you're when you're in a moment when you're in a zeitgeist i guess it feels strange to uh to imagine the alternatives the outsides of the textures of, of uh those kinds of stories in like a post post-apocalypse when you're imagining um yeah kind of what that might look like mm-hmm. kind of reminded of like uh, M- moon down actually <laughs> with the coffee making like I don't know if either of you played that game, but um, yeah, but just like that idea, yeah, you know, like it's set in this very uncanny and 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 creepy environment, and then, but it's also there's a lot of like domestic, not a lot of, but there's like some level of domestic detail that you normally don't see in games, where it's like you sit, you make coffee, you sleep in a bed, you like um, get water from the well from the well outside, like there's like that slowness of life. Like there's not a lot of like, of of uh, um, things needing to uh, tension or dramatic tension of things needing to happen quickly, uh, which is is like part of I think the the dichotomy there where like um, a lot of media, um, Final Fantasy included, would kind of revolve around this kind of uh, existential threat uh, and the need to like kind of re- react react to it and to 
and to make plans and to, to like you know make your your stand and then uh it's and that is exciting you know which you know there's like the hunger games reference as well um mm -hmm. but then like the that flip side of yeah just kind of like focusing on the small details is uh something that it, uh, of of daily living regardless you know kind of like living in spite of the world that is like really compelling i mean it also reminds me of uh from this conversation i was thinking a little bit about earth sea which is like one of my favorite fantasy series um uh with by ursula Gwyn, and just especially in the later books it, it dwells so much on on uh on domestic life and like kind of characters just like survive like not surviving but like living and, and enjoying them trying to enjoy themselves and trying to like enjoy their basically old age and and their uh kind of the the, the brevity of their lives and i and it's just i don't know it, it's hit me at the at a good the timing is right for me just kind of trying to like figure out how to like how to how to how to exist and how to not necessarily like feel like i i am uh on this like tightrope of of needing to figure out what right moves to make to save the world you know it's like something that we, we all kind of have to like make uh find some way to 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 make peace with to like to for our own like you know well-being mentally um so i think it's like this kind of media is really important and i'm glad that you you shone a light on uh quite on at least like some examples of it histo like historically yeah, and like when we were talking about this, you actually told me to play View Design. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, by Alcopora <laughs> Games, uh, which is a Danish developer actually, um, mm -hmm. and that is just delightful. Um, I mm -hmm. think that is a has a similar perspective. Uh, has that? Um, I think it has the the, the quality of the the, ex, the like experience, the affect. I would describe as Mona Noaware. Um, which is uh, like a sensitivity to things that's used mm. in, to describe Yokomakashi Kiko. Um, I think Mutazion has that same thing, but it is set uh, before apocalypse has happened necessarily. Like it is set during slow climate collapse, almost feels like. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And it's like I think I think it's just such an interesting perspective, um, especially considering the setup of like who the characters are. It's like racial and gendered dynamics to how they view this time and place that they are in it yeah. makes me think too of of you know you do argue i think to a certain extent in in art that deals with uh collapse uh, especially climate collapse of well what what is kind of at stake here especially when it becomes uh science fiction and gets removed a little bit you know you can look at say like Blade Runner and especially like the the Denny Villeneuve one and say well sort of what is the beauty in this world like what what is making it that you'd want to keep existing um you talk about that with how do you pronounce it mutazion you I think it's mutazion or mutazone mutazone I... <laughs> but you look at that and it's like you yes. know it it makes a very strong argument for itself obviously by saying you know, look at these living things um, that are being stewarded by this this island of uh, people. I guess they're mutants. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and also it's turned out to be good timing. I've been 
just finished replaying Death Stranding, which I know is not uh, everyone's cup of tea, but I got a lot out of it. And I think you can look at that too, which is also a game sort of about collapse and extinction and how it makes time for things like you're talking about these slow moments of, of things of making coffee or something. And that game, you know, has essentially monster a, energy drink. Well, <laughs> yeah, it does have that. But it has things like, you know, sit and look at this landscape for a while. It'll be good mm-hmm. for you, you know, and sort of dwell on on what what is going on here. That's beautiful. You got like a funny baby, you know, what, what kind of what clearer symbol do you want for, you know, a future worth preserving than look at this funny baby. It's going to do <laughs> funny things. And you're like, yeah, I do like a funny baby. <laughs> but yeah, no, it just made yeah. me think of that. Like you do, I guess, kind of make a, a choice of, well, what, what is worth preserving here? And, and uh, mm-hmm. is it worth preserving when you're showing certain things, which isn't always doesn't always seem like the the forefront consideration when you when you talk about collapse like you do kind of have to make an argument like well why do we give a shit about continuing if all we're you know and then something like the last of us maybe makes the the argument that well we don't deserve to continue living it's a you know deeply pessimistic game especially uh, for some reason, they had to do it twice to really make sure we understood that <laughs> it doesn't have a. But, you know, it's essentially a game that ends with like, well, yeah, after everything, we're going to do it, and we're just going to do it. Um, you know, a lot of these things are, are just going to be horrible, and so who cares? You know, we were talking to on the first part of this, talking to uh, Jay Costello and Kian Mar, and Kian wrote about uh, Last of Us Part Two and. You know, it, it really makes you think about the things of, like, well, maybe these mushroom people, they should live instead of us. Like, when we're not around, they're fine. They're not eating each other all the time. They're they're uh, making maybe nicer societies than, than the ones we make. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, a long roundabout way of saying that uh, hearing about these, like, this genre of, of kind of you know, looking like exploring this kind of post post apocalyptic Japan and and just seeing nice things and you know uh, meeting people and doing those kind of things. It's like, well, yeah, that's kind of what it's about, right? Um, kind of argues for for us continuing in some form or some aspect of how we view the world continuing in some form, I guess. Mm-hmm. You mean by, by a mutant? <laughs> Wait, which game were you talking about? <laughs> I no, I was talking about the uh, again, the anime. I can't. Oh, the anime. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot for a second. Yeah. No, Bio like, Bio is Biomutant Bio set in Japan? <laughs> no, Biomutant makes no. <laughs> the, the How can you stop of... talking about the most fascinating game of all time, Biomutant? <laughs> well, I, feel, I was gonna say I feel bad too, like. <laughs> With John, it's like, well, there's a lot to talk about with Final Fantasy. And it's like, <laughs> I guess it's like Autumn, it's like your article as well. It's like, well, it's a really good article. And Biomutant is it's in a there. game. It is a game. <laughs> it's a video game. <laughs> yeah. Happens sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Yusuf, did you want to wrap it up? Yeah. Thinking? Yeah, I think that it's a good cap. Talk, returning again to our favorite game. Um, yeah i mean i don't know reed if you want to ask your question about games 
place in environmentalism or if you've been scared straight to not ask it again no i've been scared straight <laughs> but, uh, i asked uh, if you end up listening to the first part of this i asked a, just a terrible question to uh, <laughs> keenan and jay about sort of like no but then by saying this now i'm, I'm basically <laughs> asking it. i don't know i guess maybe you're just trapped we're already forming a hot take on this. Go on. Horrible yeah. question about sort of... What was it? Like, sort of, do you, do you see much of a point of... And I already know the answer to this. <laughs> of, of What do you think... I guess I'll rephrase it. What do you think art's role is in, in sort of the... This moment in time in, in terms of however you feel about climate change, of, of sort of resisting the worsening man-made effects... Like, do you, do you think art plays a, a central role, or is it sort of just maybe documenting the our, our kind of descent? I don't know. Go to Autumn first, and then John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you go first. Yeah. All right. Like um, it's meaner to whoever has to go first. Yeah, I, I mean, I basically have a 12-part answer to this question in my column <laughs> yes. at Unwinnable Monthly. <laughs> uh, oh. Like, I've written about this kind of specific thing um, mm. uh, in the article Egress, specifically. You do, whoever's listening wants to go look that up. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, like, uh, I was actually writing about Neurotomoda in that, and I used this uh, quote from... Uh, the poet Noor Hindi, uh, I'm pretty sure is Palestinian, um, and uh, she has this poet uh, poem called "Fuck Your Lecture on Craft, My People Are Dying," um, and yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, like the thing is, like I think the like, you kind of touched on this, like you know, the industries that allow the creation of video games to even exist also do so much of the harm. Um, and I don't know that you even get computers at the scale that we have them now without relying on colonial systems of extraction. Um, so, like, the fact that games even exist is probably just a, a symptom of uh, greater harm. Um, and, yeah, like, I, I mean, as someone that freaking graduated with a writing degree during the pandemic, like, I really struggling to figure out what the point of all of this is right now <laughs> um and i think games as they exist can sometimes be this uh this depressant this sort of uh something that makes us acquiesce makes us look away um i do think art so i do think there is a role of art in making uh in like imagining alternatives uh i think that is important um and like it is central to the history of humanity um but i don't think a lot of games even do like say something interesting about that i don't think they challenge us like and the industry that uh relies on those status quo has no interest in making those stories more apparent um and like you know like even though final fantasy VII remake has some revolutionary ideas as you know y'all talked about like it is still rooted in capitalism it's still made by a corporation that is trying to sell us stuff um and selling us stuff by using uh all these harmful methods just you know uh following the turtles all the way down uh whether you want to look at uh the economic impact 
uh, the environmental impacts, the human impact on all of this stuff. Like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think this rant has an endpoint. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I, go. Yeah, that's the that's the problem with the question is <laughs> there are a lot of ways to answer it. Some that feel extremely obvious, and then also yeah. Anyway, though, John. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, I you know I've written uh, quite a lot before about you know how it's possible for any kind of um, kind of radical change. Um, and you know, and the role of the media in art, and of course, you know, it always comes back to the corporate control of of the media and art forms. Um, you know, having to use corporate channels to to even get messages out, um, and that makes it very difficult. I don't, I don't know that it's, you know, it means that, you know, everything is is pointless. You know, there's no point trying. But I, you know, every every interesting take, every different uh, way of, of looking at it and making us, us question things. I mean, it, it has this, it's, it's a little chip, you know, on the facade in a way. And I suppose you just need more of it, but how do you get more of it? That's always the, the you know, the problem, isn't it? It's always about uh, quantity. You know, how do you challenge the dominant narratives? How do you have the quantity to challenge the dominant narratives? Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's a case of you just have to keep doing what you can, don't you? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, and I think it's not always about an environmental message, you know, an explicit environmental message so much. I think games can be good at um, just making us question assumptions, you know, that a lot of people make about uh, and you know received ideas and truisms about. Uh, you know, modern life that uh, you know that should be questioned and often aren't. You know, I mean, I think it's interesting you're talking about uh, Mundown and this kind of the routines of everyday life that, that sort of fit into it. I mean, I think what's interesting about fitting routines like that into something like Mundown is then you get this kind of estranging effect. You know, the routines, you know, they're not like these separate normal things outside of the kind of weird horror scenario they're intertwined mm. with it so mm. you know it's it's maybe a break from the horror but also the horror you know uh, sort of feeds into these moments <laughs> so they, they stop being quite so normal they stop being mm. quite so uh, everyday you know you feel the sense of estrangement the sense of alienation even in the everyday and I think that's you know that's one thing that art can do and you know sort of from modern art onwards it's about that kind of sense of estrangement the sense that there is another dimension to the everyday that we don't necessarily think about and that we need to think about and also this kind of utopian dimension that there are other ways of seeing the world there are other possibilities there for I mean you know and art is always going to have that role um, so mm-hmm. yeah. in that sense yes um, but you know in a in a larger economic sense it's obviously the you know whether it can it can actually break through you know, and as Autumn said as well, we're dealing with video games here, we're dealing with computers, we're dealing with huge servers and so on. You know, th- their own environmental um, impact has to be taken into account. You know, video games are going to have to reckon with their own environmental footprint at some point too. Yeah, 100%. Oh, just wait, just wait till E3 uh, 2023 and <laughs> I think they, they have a, sta- they have a sta- statement ready. They're going to yeah. fix everything. What was that? Uh, I love the uh, 
when the latest Horizon came out, which just what a, a perfect emblem of so many things. And <laughs> yeah. once you got the first achievement, they would plant a tree for you or something like that. You had to find the exact story. It was some uh, just like, yeah. To, uh, be, because the game is about the post-apocalypse. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, uh, Doesn't that just say it all? As you run around dressed in the uh, yeah, sort of context-free costume of the colonized people um, and reenact. Anyway. <laughs> we could... <laughs> This is why Final Fantasy VII Remake seems like a big deal, you know, because everything well, exactly. else is like it's, that, you know. It's, yeah. it's not really, it's not wow, it's not that amazingly revolutionary or anything, but, you know, it kind of, compared to what we're used to with a lot of AAA stuff, it's, uh, you know, it, it stands out a bit at least. A hundred percent. It's I always think of it as just like, in, in mainstream games especially, there's, you know, a lot of a lot of good stuff happens outside of the mainstream, but it's just the... the ankle high low bar to clear mm. that just mm-hmm. often just isn't cleared you know like final fantasy 7 is is just sort of a it's a good ya story in a sense right it's yeah not to say there isn't a lot of lot going on there but yeah yeah you talking about mundown again also makes me think like mm-hmm. everyone should go play that that's mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there's a lot you could say also about that game and it's it's look at the natural world and kind of a Christian viewpoint of the natural world and yeah there's a part where everything very literally that you see in front of you becomes not what you see that stuck in my head and I think it's a great (laughs) example of sort of Abrahamic worldview and also like yeah thinking of reality and nature and hell of a game hell of a game yes it's no biomutant it is it's pretty good Well, yeah, I, mean, I guess there's been yeah. some interesting stuff this year as well. I mean, Norco, I guess, is one mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. you know, I guess, um, mm-hmm. especially as it's, it's Louisiana, I guess Autumn would um, be interested in that. Mm-hmm. It did, actually, when I first read about Norco, I think I first read about, actually, Zach Coates or uh, Funland. There was a piece on Norco. And I think that might have been around the time that you wrote the Biomutant article on them and some of the imagery of uh, what do they call those stacks uh, chip stacks whatever. yeah and yeah. was making me think of just that yeah that kind of Louisiana uh, industrial kind of swampy industrialization mm-hmm. anyway yeah um, was but yeah any... we should oh let's go ahead I was going to wrap up yeah I was just going to ask Autumn and John, if there's anything they want to plug uh, from recent work or anything as we wrap up here. Uh, yeah, wait, when's, when's this podcast come out? <laughs> uh, probably within the next, like, I would say, the next week 10 or days. Two, yeah, two weeks. Okay, because uh, coming out uh, this Thursday, so when you're listening to this, it should already be out. Uh, uh, I have a preview of Xenoblade Chronicles 3 coming out at Polygon. Um, nice. I want to talk about Lacanian acts. Uh, Xeno- <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, Xenoblade is the game for you. 
Cool. I'm, yeah, I'm interested to see that as someone who, uh, Xenoblade 2 was one of the most, like, cycle, it was like a, an assault on the senses in a lot of ways, and, <laughs> yeah. I, and I eventually I had to, like, admit defeat and <laughs> get it, and put it down. I had to retreat from Xenoblade. Uh, and Autumn, where can we where can we find you on Twitter? Oh yeah, uh, you can follow me at the Autumn Wright uh, for more of my writing. And as I mentioned, you can uh, find me in Unwinnable Monthly as well. Yeah, definitely give Autumn's column a, a read because it's nonstop quality. I would say. Thank you. Banger after banger. Also, you're going to be in that uh, Heterotopias coming out. Is that, so John, is, that wait, is that coming out soon? <laughs> it is. It's just taking a while. Cool. I think, yeah. you know, <laughs> I think Gareth made the mistake of making a game at the same time as trying to put out <laughs> a two-part huge issue. Uh, I managed yeah. to get in the last one of those. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not in the next one. Oh, right, 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 right. With the Paradise Killer piece. That's right. Mm. I just remember reading that. Yes. Anyway. I edited Autumns, and it's very good. Thank you. So you can all look forward to that. Uh, John, what do you want to plug, or and or where can people find you? Um, yeah, okay, I'm on Twitter occasionally, um, just at JohnBales3. Um, I don't know, I, I guess I'll plug my book as well, it's been out for a couple of years now, but Ideology and the Virtual City, uh, Zero Books, um, which is, yeah, kind of critical theory and uh, video game stuff. Uh, otherwise, just, I don't know, whatever freelance stuff <laughs> happens to be popping up, various reviews and other bits. Quite a lot of them on British sites and magazines, so yeah, probably not stuff that uh, you would necessarily come across in America. That's it. It's really. all online, you know, it's on the internet. Yeah. Well, yeah, not the Edge magazine stuff. <laughs> the Edge magazine well, stuff is the greatest injustice done in this 21st century <laughs> that we can't easily get edge should be sold here yeah actually yeah. At my, uh, i guess you can get the online version yeah, yeah at the uh my public library when i lived in florida actually had a subscription oh yeah, yeah. that must so, have been some some kid <laughs> probably i should actually <laughs> i should ask my library to see if they'll do that that's not a bad yeah. idea Ask your library for things that you want to read, people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it is a good idea. I will do that. Um, yeah. Actually, the, the, ne the next issue, I mean, I, don't, I suppose it's something to plug. It's, it's the first mm. time I've done a cover feature for them. So. Oh, oh nice. Yeah. What's it on, yeah. the cover? I, I, I probably shouldn't say at the moment. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it's okay. probably supposed to be a okay. surprise, but yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's the first one I've done, so I guess it's something. It's on capitalist extraction, the game, and how why the strong environment. Yeah, what a what a ironically. Mm. Um. Um, yeah, but I think that is it for for us for this episode. I mean, it was really great conversation. Thank you both for coming on, and thank you both for writing your pieces, which are excellent. And really, I really enjoyed rereading. Thank you. It's always great working with y'all. Yeah, Likewise. good. Yeah. I enjoyed. Yeah, I read the the whole lot today. Actually, all the ones you've republished. Yeah, it's a really good, a really good collection together. Yeah, yeah. hopefully we'll get to do more more theme uh, themes 
or revisiting of themes. Because I think it's kind of fun to mm -hmm. to because we have that backlog and or that that archive and it, being able to like use that mm -hmm. yeah. uh, to drum up new conversation is really fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, grouping them together is like that is. I like how there's yeah you can kind of get a different viewpoint of things hopefully from how those four pieces are when you read them together how they kind of bounce off each other yeah yeah I mean yeah. I think even mine and Autumn's pieces you know you put those together I think it's uh, you know, these two quite you know they, they, they come together very well you know there's kind of uh, opposing ideas there but you know they kind of complement each other and it's, it's really interesting to read them like that yeah kind yeah. of a I mean, neo-marxist theory in there <laughs> yeah, there was some thinking too about also just how to instead of when realizing that having six people on a podcast would not be a good idea. Of, <laughs> it, it did seem like yours, the two of yours together, uh, similar to uh, Jay and Kian's, they I think bounce off each other well. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yeah, Yusuf, do you want me to do the the roundup of things to do? Sure. See how fast I can do it. You gotta Let's go to bullet it. points. You gotta go to bulletpointsmonthly.com. <laughs> you, you gotta read the articles. That's number one. That's the top of the world tree. Um, <laughs> and then you have to go to patreon.com/bulletpoints, and you gotta give us money because if you don't, the tree withers and dies. You are the rain and sunshine. <laughs> uh, while you're there, you can, aside from just doing your good deed, you can also uh, there's like podcast exclusive episodes right now uh, Ed Smith and I are doing a series on Remedy Entertainment's games uh, called Violent Shapes so that's ongoing you also get access to the Superculture Network Discord uh, if you give enough money you get a copy of OK Hero which is a book about Metal Gear Solid I like it I wrote like half of it so I like it actually no, I like. Ed Do you Tom like it more? I probably probably not if I read my own. It has a sweet cover. Um, True. Anyway, just put it in then, your put it in your bookshelf and look at the cover. Yeah, exactly. Even though it's not so cool. Um, <laughs> but Superculture Discord, you talk to lots of people who are good people. It's like Twitter, except it doesn't suck. Um, and Superculture includes bullet points. It includes heterotopias. It includes bad end and it includes Funland. And then the last part of the Superculture thing is that uh, we are just about to get back to Idea of Evil, which is a podcast that myself and Heterotopia's editor, uh, Gareth Damian Martin, are doing where we've been reading through Berserk and talking at great length about Berserk. Anyway, I think I got it all. Nice. Did I get it well, all? Everybody, yeah, well... Ed can edit, add in stuff if you missed it. Anyway, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time on the internet. Bye.